Amen. Take your copy of God's Word. Open, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 12, and we are going to pick up where we left off in verse 38 today. It's such a blessing to see you in the Lord's house today. I don't know about you, but some people are superstitious when it comes to their sports. Adolph Rupp, the longtime coach for Kentucky basketball on away games, used to scour the visiting parking lot, searching everywhere he could for a bobby pin. And if he found that bobby pin, it meant they would have a chance at winning the game. If he didn't find it, didn't matter what the plays were, didn't matter what happened, they would not win the game. His assistant coach would offer him three different sticks of chewing gum. He could have Wrigley, he could have a spearmint, he could also have a Beachmont. He always picked the Beachmont. More often than not, he wore a brown suit for the games because to wear anything else was to risk superstition. I kind of used to do a similar thing back when Kentucky basketball was winning games and we'd be down, I'd be yelling at the television, telling Coach Cow to do something different. Obviously, he wouldn't hear me through the screen. I would remember on certain days that I was not wearing my lucky Kentucky shorts and socks. And so when halftime would hit, I would change into them. One of the superstitions is you have to be careful how many times you wash them. It's like shaking hands with a, with a famous person. You don't want to wipe off that sheen. But many of us live in a similar way in our relationship with God. Maybe we say we're not superstitious. Maybe we don't rub the idol or say some incantations or whatever it may be. But many of us are often looking for a sign. I remember taking it to the extreme. I would say, Lord, if I really know you, or this is what you really want me to do, as a kid, I would go out and I would say, let me hit this shot playing basketball. Those of you that know me know I was never very good at basketball. So I missed out on a lot of the Lord's will until I'd hit that shot, just waiting. Lord, is this exactly what you want me to do? The culture tells us constantly, look for a sign. Show me a sign. And Jesus is going to tell us we actually already have all the signs we need in God's word. Look at verse 38 of chapter 12. This is what he says. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister 
and my mother. C.S. Lewis talks about the great treat of his day for the children in the Chronicles of Narnia, which was Turkish delight. And Edmund is so entranced by trying to get some of the Turkish delight that he gets it from the Wicked Witch, the wrong source, and she absolutely stuffs him with Turkish delight to the point at which what he thought he wanted to have, he had really had too much of. When you think that a sign will confirm what you need to do, you may not be in too much of a different place. If you could get right now what you wanted, if God would just show you exactly what you're supposed to do and show you such an obvious sign that there would be no doubt in your heart and in your mind, would it really leave you satisfied? Because so much of Jesus' ministry is about confronting false expectations. The expectations of the crowds, the expectation of the Pharisees, even the expectations of his own disciples. You know, he really didn't spend a whole lot of time worrying about what other people thought of him. His only concern was in pleasing his father. And that desire changed his interactions with everyone that he encountered. Because having God's perspective on my relationship with others, not what does this person think of me or not what do they not think of me, but what does God think of them? What is the most loving thing I can do for this person? How can I help introduce God's will into their lives? It changes my perspective. That's what Jesus does here. Some people would say, well, if God is real, then let him strike me with lightning. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Maybe somebody who didn't believe in God. If God is real, just let him strike me with lightning. Well, what kind of a God would he be to obey your command? Someone said the kind of miracle they were demanding, Jesus consistently refused to perform. His miracles were always directed towards the fulfilling of a need left by those for whom the miracle was performed. Jesus was not a circus performer, gratifying the appetite for wonders on the part of people who were not serious about spiritual things. From the beginning, he refused to demand that God should do miraculous things for him. I don't know what some of you have found out, but something that is true, what you want from God and what you need from God are often two totally different things. What you want from God may not be from God, but what you need from God will always be from him. And they impose their rules on God. This is what they, they try to do. But there's something about signs. Signs in the Bible are real. Signs in the Bible obviously happen. You can see indications of them in both the Old and New Testament. But something we must always see, signs are only granted to people of faith. And so how can the faithless ever see them? Jesus says, let it be done for you according as you have believed. So he says, an evil and adulterous generation actually seeks after a sign. They're adulterous. That is, they are commandment breakers. Just as adulterers break the covenant of marriage, so Israel has broken their covenant with God. And they request that Jesus should somehow confirm his own credibility in a miraculous way. Show us who you really are. Prove yourself. It's not the first time Jesus will hear that. It's not the first time it happens in the Old or New Testament. In fact, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 2, reflects this assumption that a prophet would be validated only by showing a sign. You say you're a prophet, so show a sign. So the turning back of the sun, 
the collapse of the walls of Jerusalem, uh, John 6, 30 through 31, the wilderness manna, seen as one of those signs. And there's an irony here because what's just happened? Jesus has just finished casting out the demons, and so exorcisms have been done against Satan. It's an obvious sign. They're saying, show us a sign, and Jesus is showing them by doing so in casting out these demons. You know, it's really the same thing that Satan says to Jesus in the wilderness. Throw yourself down. Command these stones to be made bread. Worship me, and you will have all of these goods. It's the same thing that they're later going to say to him at the cross. If you're really the Christ, if you're really the Son of God, take yourself down. Prove yourself. And yet Jesus has nothing to prove. In fact, he says something so extreme when he shares the story of the rich man and Lazarus that you'll remember. The rich man eats well in the sight of the beggar, Lazarus, right outside of his gates. The rich man dies, goes to hell. Lazarus dies, goes to heaven. And in hell, we're given this vision of the rich man who he says, send someone, send someone. After saying, cool the tip of my tongue, send someone to tell my brothers And what is the response from heaven? If they will not listen to Moses, if they will not listen to the prophets, neither will they hear my words, though one rise from the dead. So we can literally say that Jesus could walk into this room physically right now, and there would still be people on this earth who would not believe. Because it isn't really a sign that they're after. It's a wayward heart. So what is the sign of Jonah that we're given? It's the preaching of repentance. You remember what Jonah went through? God said, go up, go up to Nineveh. And what does he do? He goes down to Tarshish. He goes away from the Lord. God says, go one way. He goes exactly the opposite. But God's faster than he is, sends a whale and a fish after him. Jonah has a little bit stomach-turning time to think about what exactly he's going to do. Spit up on the seashore, goes preaches repentance, and of all things, the people repent, and Jonah gets mad about it, which is a whole different story. But that's the sign. The sign wasn't that he got swallowed by a whale or a fish or a sea creature. The sign was that the people repented. And he says, here's what's actually going to happen. If you refuse to repent, that is a sign itself because the sign is actually a sign of judgment. One person put it this way. The time in the belly of the fish functioned to confirm Jonah in his role as a preacher of judgment. Three days in the earth functioned to confirm Jesus as the one who has to declare that judgment inasmuch as his ministry is met with rejection. So Jesus functions as that one who unfolds his own ministry in his death, the rejection by his own generation and the judgment that comes. Here's the difference between that generation and the generation that Jesus describes, perhaps the generation that we are facing now. The difference between everyone else in the Ninevites is that the Ninevites repented. Jonah got mad. But Jesus' generation refuses to repent, even though someone greater than Jonah is here. Solomon, in all his glory, who the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, came to visit, he was so great. The richest man who ever lived, likely a trillionaire, simultaneously one of Israel's greatest and worst kings, all in his lifetime. They would have gotten on their knees if they could have seen what Jesus showed. And yet people don't repent. 
Some of you get in arguments on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and threads and whatever else they've got out here on social media, and you think, if I just make the right arguments and if I just prove my point, that's going to convert them to Christianity. And you almost never do. Why? Because they're not really after arguments. They're not really seeking truth. And here, we often think that the greatest punishment will be suffering or persecution. Show, show me a sign. A sign might be that I receive healing. Show me a sign that I get out of poverty. Show me a sign that I'm released from this burden that I can't face. And yet that may not be my greatest problem. One Vietnamese Christian, after being persecuted for generations in his own village, said, suffering is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Disobedience to God is the worst thing that can happen to us. Have you thought about that? That suffering isn't the real evil in your life. Disobedience is. It'll do more harm to you than suffering ever will. I think about people who consult astrology charts or, or fortune tellers. They say, well, what's your sign? You know, or you, you can go into to New Orleans. We were there for the Southern Baptist Convention a few weeks ago. You can walk in the, the French Quarter there at, uh, there at Jackson Square and, and just see your fortune read. They'll tell you all your problems. They'll make them up, and maybe you'll still believe. Anybody will tell your fortune or your astrological sign, but you know what? Instead of seeking after the fortune tellers and the star readers and the ones who read the stars, why don't you take a talk to the one who is the maker of the stars and calls you by name. Do more for you than a sign ever will. Now, why is seeking after a sign wrong? Shouldn't they have just trusted in Jesus? Given what they've seen, remember what they've seen to this point. They've seen the feeding of the 5,000. They've seen all kinds of miraculous things. And yet if you're always asking for a sign, have you seen the greatest sign of all? Have you seen the salvation of the Lord? Have you seen his wondrous works? Have you seen his son lifted up on the cross? You know, there's some people who wait on doing the will of God until they've had a sign. God, if you'll just show me exactly what you want me to do, I will do it. And God says, I've already shown you exactly what to do. It's in my word. Pick it up. Love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you get done with that, come back. That's the will of God for your life, that you would live for his good pleasure right now. Think about this. God may not do exactly what we ask, but it's not because he's unable to do it. What we have to do is believe that the scripture is true, that he doesn't withhold any good thing from his children. It comes down to what it always does. Do you trust God more or yourself more? Do you trust the word of God or the word of man? Do you trust your own mind or do you have the mind of Christ? And so he calls them out for it. 
Well, in between all of this, even as Jesus is casting out demons, when they've said the only reason you're casting out demons is because you're the prince of demons, which Jesus says a house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan cannot cast out Satan. Either I'm of the devil, but since I'm casting out devils, maybe I come from the Lord. In the middle of all this, when they're having this conversation about the signs, here comes an unclean spirit beginning in verse 43. This unclean spirit that goes out of a person, passes through, comes back, worse than its own day. This man who faces this unclean spirit, he's tried to clean up his house. He's done everything to clean his house. You ever tried to, to clean your house and to really deep clean it and get it clean? It doesn't last that way for very long. You go around these, these classrooms right now, and a lot of them, their floors have just been waxed almost to perfection. You can eat off these floors. You give it one week of school, and those floors will be as dirty as they can be from dirt and, and, and everything else. It's like that in your house. It's like that everywhere else. Well, this man tried to clean up his house with soap and water when what he needed was the blood of Christ. He washed his body, but he didn't bother to wash his, his soul. He, he purged it with soap and water, but what he needed was hyssop and the blood of Christ, able to purge all of his sin. It's not enough to put off that sin. I've also got to put on the righteousness of Christ. And here Jesus says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of my Father. You want to know the true sign. You want to know the true mark. For the disciple of Christ, someone who obeys the will of God, who says, I didn't even come to do my own will. I'm here to do the will of my Father. You say, this is my life. I'm going to do what I want with it. No, it's not. It's the life that God has given you. His breath is filling your lungs. His heart is making your heart beat. And your life on this earth and in all eternity, for that matter, is meant solely for him. And until you figure that out, you're going to spend all of your life running around, chasing everything else that the world, the flesh, and the devil has to offer. And I'm just going to tell you before anyone else does, it all comes down to nothing apart from him. It's vanity. Tis one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, at one point, not just in this passage, when Jesus is confronted here by his family members, it's also recorded in Mark 3.21 and in John 7.5, where Jesus is confronted by his family. Now, hadn't he already told his followers that it would come at a cost, that following them might even necessitate the loss of family because one's spiritual family ultimately takes eternal precedence over one's biological family. You're, you're moving from a family of man to the family uh, of God. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 3. He says, this is the displaying potential of a church to the world of family-like unity. It doesn't happen anywhere except in the church, and it looks scandalous in comparison to what we often see. This is what Jesus says. Here's the sign. By this will all men know that you are my disciples when you love one another. That's the difference. People who love one another who have no earthly reason for doing so. You say, I wouldn't even be around that person if it wasn't for church. That is the whole point. That the love of Christ is able to cover a multitude of sins. The church ought to be the most loving place on the face of the earth. Hey, you may or may not have an earthly family, but the family of God is open invitation to those who will come. 
And so everything in your life hinges on a very small door. Obedience to the will of the Father. Because wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. But narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life. And few there be who find it. But for those who do, oh dear friends, what a blessing. And so how you relate to your family, how you relate to your coworkers, how you handle opposition, how you deal with struggles, the key is to have your thoughts and your words and your actions in alignment and obedience to the will of God. Here's what happens when God's desires become your desires. You delight yourself in the law of the Lord. He gives you the desires of your heart. But the flip of that is also true. When you begin to delight yourself in the law and desires of God, the desires of your heart begin to change. Because in order to love him, in order to obey him, I have to love him. And I've got to love him with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. And friend, there's no way to love him unless you know him. And you know what he did for you on the cross. See, here's what's sad about the entire gospel narrative. Isn't it tragically ironic that those who see Jesus up close, you think of Judas as the disciple, you think of the Pharisees as the religious leaders, are often the very ones who completely miss his message. It's often the lost that comprehend the gospel message better than the religious because they know what it is to be without he is right in front of them, and yet these Pharisees can't see him. And while this world wants to consistently be built on free will, your life needs to be built on God's will. Here is Jesus talking to the crowd. He's always talking to three basic groups. He's talking to the disciples. That's the inner circle. He's talking to the crowds at large, whosoever will. And he's always talking to the Pharisees, the religious establishment. He corrects the disciples, he encourages the crowds, and he rebukes the Pharisees. And he's showing them that the sign is actually right in front of them. Because Jesus, in Matthew 12, 6, is greater than the temple. In Matthew 12, 41, he's greater than the prophet Jonah. And here in 12, 42, he's greater than King Solomon. And so his person, his proclamation, his inauguration of the kingdom are greater than... And therefore, they are the fulfillment, they are the sign of the greatest institutions in Israel, prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus is the only one who fills all of them. G.K. Chesterton said years ago, this world is not lacking in wonders, but in a sense of wonder at what God did, that his creation is all around you. The evidence of who he is surrounds you. But it's not enough just to have that evidence. I've got to do something with it. I've got to put my faith in Christ. There's a historian by the name of Simon Shaman who described one of the most ecologically friendly movements of the 20th century. Initiated some of the first recycling programs. Taught people how to garden for themselves. Intentionally took youth into the wilderness to experience the power of creation that movement for young people was known as the Third Reich. And from 1933 to 1935, Adolf Hitler enacted the first significant environmental legislation in modern history. This historian concludes, it is of course painful to acknowledge 
how ecologically conscious the most barbaric regime in modern history actually was. Exterminating millions of lives was not at all incompatible with passionate protection of millions of trees. Dear friends, it's not enough to seek to do good things. It's not enough to seek goodwill. I have to seek the goodness of God. I have to have his righteousness. And the sign that you can't see is right in front of you. Here it is. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. Are you looking for a sign today? Jesus says, I'll show it to you. I'll show it to you through my nail-pierced hands. <laughs> I'll show it through my side. I'll show it by being seated at the right hand of my Father's throne, ever living to make intercession for you. Father, I pray right now that in a world that is constantly looking for signs and wonders, that you would fill us with the greatest wonder of all. I think of that old song, the wonder of it all, the wonder of it all, to think that God loved me. Father, today, for those of us who are seeking after signs in everything and everyone other than Jesus, may you point us to your cross and resurrection. Lord, for someone here today who maybe doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior and Master King, may today be that day of salvation. Lord, help us to see that the only thing worth living in this life is a life lived for Christ. And so, Lord, let it affect our work. Let it affect our home. Let it affect the very words that come out of our mouths, the meditation of our hearts. May they be filled with hope that Jesus has come to save, to seek and to save the lost. Have your way in this church. Help us to let our light shine. In Jesus' name, amen.